0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. In the summer of 2020, 19-year-old Mimi Groves was looking forward to starting at the University of Tennessee, where she was selected to be part of their elite cheerleading squad. But in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, Mimi was deeply upset. So she posted on her Instagram, urging her followers to, quote, protest, donate, sign a petition, rally, do something, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. A classmate she didn't know, Jimmy Galligan, had been waiting for this moment. A few years earlier, Mimi had sent a three-second video to a friend in which she used the N-word. Another classmate shared the video with Galligan, who stored it for future use. And so, years later, he posted the video on her Instagram, commenting, You have the audacity to post this after saying the N-word? The post went viral. In response, the University of Tennessee, bowing to pressure from students and alumni, withdrew their offer for her to join the cheerleading squad and pressured her not to enroll. At the time, she said, I didn't understand the severity of the word or the history and context behind it because I was so young. It honestly disgusts me that those words would come out of my mouth. But, she continued, how can you convince somebody that has never met you and the only thing they've ever seen of you is that three-second clip? We now live in a complicated time. More and more, our culture has grown ever more intolerant of the expression of ideas that offend us. If a quarterback takes a knee during the national anthem, we call for the team to expel him. If a speaker comes to campus to share ideas we find offensive, we interrupt the lecture and shout down the speaker. If a book has an idea we don't like, we make schools pull that book from the shelves. Our response is not to respond with ideas, but with judgment and public shaming in order to cancel the offender. There may be virtues to canceling someone whose ideas we find offensive or dangerous, but there may also be dangers where we lose our capacity to tolerate protest or dissent, or where we choose judgment over curiosity and refuse to allow for the possibility that a person can make a mistake or grow from an error in judgment. My guest today, Evan Neerman, has spent years studying the effects of cancel culture on individuals and organizations. Evan is the CEO of Red Banyan, a strategic communications firm. Evan has spent his career guiding national and international clients through high-stakes complex situations, including the government of Ethiopia and AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. Evan is the author of two books, including the newly released The Cancel Culture Curse and his previous work, Crisis Averted. And it is a pleasure to have you with us today, Evan, to talk about this and to think about cancel culture and how it plays in our society. So, Evan, first I'd like to start by asking you, what is cancel culture? What does it mean to be canceled? Well... I'm about to read you the definition
1: from my book of how I define cancel culture, and I think you're going to see that it fits the anecdote that you just related to a T. Cancel culture is the use of intimidation by a morally absolute coalition to isolate and disproportionately punish an alleged transgressor.
0: Okay, so help us unpack that definition.
1: Well... In order to unpack it, I actually want to expound upon it a little bit and talk to you about something very interesting, which I've discovered through working with victims of cancel culture, targets of cancel culture. I started doing my research. I was looking at sociologists who've written about political witch hunts, and I have identified what I believe are the six core elements that constitute cancel culture. And you can remember these six elements with the acronym CONDEM, C-A-N-D-E-M. So I'll take you through quickly what those mean, and I think it'll make perfect sense to the listeners. So the C, a collective is considered a victim of the crime. The A, that it arises and accelerates quickly. They move very quickly as a result of social media interconnectedness. N, the nature of the offense is trivial, minor, or fabricated. D. It prompts a disproportionate response, the E, everyone is afraid to get involved when a cancel culture attack is underway. and I don't know the specifics of that instance, but what typically happens is someone comes under fire and others are afraid to get involved because they don't want to attract the ire of the mob. And Then the last element is M, which is the moral absolutism of those who are doing the canceling. So when you think about cancel culture through the prism of those six elements, it helps you understand what's happening. And it's happening not just to celebrities, powerful
0: people, but it's also happening to everyday citizens and it has to stop. So Evan, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this subject. What was it about this question that called you to make this part of not only your professional work, but to write a book?
1: Well, I got involved in crisis communications originally. Uh, because i was working at the time at apac in my first job in washington dc outstanding organization really high integrity professional people can't say enough wonderful things about the people i was learning from and being mentored by there and through no fault of apacs they actually became the target of a series of negative articles in the in the press a story broke the company was the organization was thrown into crisis and as the point person within apac I was actually tasked with working with the crisis communications people who came in to assist the organization and in that process I discovered a passion. I saw the value of what they were able to do as crisis communicators and when it came time for me to leave APAC I said that's that's how I want to dedicate my career because good organizations and good people find themselves in bad situations and I want to be able to help them. Now Cancel culture specifically is something that's really gathered steam over the last couple of years, and last year my my company assisted just under a hundred different individuals, guiding them through crisis situations. Many of them were cancel culture scenarios, and so I wanted to write this book to one, put some very clear definitions around cancel culture, because it's become a political hot potato on the left. The left likes to say cancel culture doesn't exist or if it does, it's good because it's good for society. The right, conversely, is calling everything cancel culture even when it's not. And so what I wanted to do was define cancel culture and also give people a playbook for things that they can do if they find themselves under fire and also ideally help them prevent themselves from becoming victims in the first place.
0: So you know, you talk about the idea that there's – cancel culture that you see on the left. You know, one of the examples that comes to mind is at Middlebury College a number of years ago, Professor Charles Murray, who's a very prominent, uh, very conservative thinker, was shouted down and it was impossible for him to do his speech. There was even violence after his attempt to have his speech done there. But now you're also seeing here in Florida, where laws are being passed by our state legislature that are muzzling college professors from teaching certain ideologies, like critical race theory. So what's going on? What do you see as the roots of cancel culture? What, where, Where is this coming from? Well, so much of it is coming from the campuses.
1: I think the campuses have become ground zero for Ill- illiberal actions by those who profess to champion liberal values. And I think the notion that on a college campus, a guest speaker or a professor is being muzzled, isn't allowed to speak publicly, is being shouted down, instances where there's violence taking place, there's nothing fundamentally more un American and less of, you know, the universities and the colleges are supposed to be bastions of debate. And we're supposed to have a marketplace of ideas where you can come you have the opportunity obviously every american enjoys the right to free speech so the question is if someone is saying something with which you don't agree that's okay you then avail yourself of the opportunity to ask questions to press that person to challenge them universities are meant to be places where there's discourse and debate we know from the jewish tradition That we we are, are not supposed to, as Jews, simply accept anything that's said without raising questions. And look, this podcast itself is called Essential Questions. Asking questions is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a fundamentally good thing. And so what we have to do is get back to a time in this country, both on the campuses, in the political sphere, on social media, where people can voice their opinions. They can raise questions. And they don't necessarily have to fear that a mob is going to come after them and try to punish them for their thoughts and try to hold them to account for things that happened in the past, etc., but I think there's a a perfect storm of factors that are making cancel culture so powerful today. It has to do with the fact that there's a 24-7 news cycle. There's a breakdown in terms of so many conventional media outlets are no longer cornering the market in talking to people. People can self-select. They can get their information from outlets that align with their own viewpoints. You've got bloggers and influencers who are on TikTok and other platforms. They may have absolutely no qualifications to weigh in on a subject, but they have tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of followers. So there's no editorial process. So people are, are getting information from all these different places and all of these things and when you mix them together in a cauldron with political uncertainty animosity, growing tribalism and partisanship, it makes for a very dangerous, perfect storm where cancel culture can take root and thrive.
0: Yeah, I think about the fact that we kind of are living in a time where that growing sense of tribalism, that sense that I've got my team and everybody else is wrong, that there's only one right way and it's my way, is a really dangerous thought. It's interesting that in the rabbinic period – there were clearly strongly held beliefs among the rabbis hundreds and thousands of years ago. But they would write ideals for themselves where they would say, as we read in Pirkei Abod, right? that any argument that's for the sake of heaven, the wisdom from that argument will endure. The idea being that we're supposed to argue, we're supposed to have debate and discussion and allow for the idea that the other person might actually have some truth that's worth listening to there's a famous passage in the talmud where it says that hillel and shammai the two great rabbinic leaders from 2000 years ago had an agreement a disagreement that lasted for more than three years then they said to resolve their dispute there was a what they call a bat kol a voice from the heavens that said, divrei Elohim, chayim. these words and those words are the words of the living God. This idea that there could be perhaps more than one truth out there. Why do you think it is that we have gotten so sort of rooted in this idea that there can only be one right way? Because that's what we're exposed
1: to day in, day out, this tribal nature of our society. I think that you know if when you look at the example that you just gave of of the two rabbis, if cancel culture existed then, then Shammai would get his supporters to go to Hillel, his house. he would release his address, he'd amass his supporters to go there, they'd harass him, they'd harangue him, they'd try to make sure that anybody who goes and learns under him is also targeted, so it just shows fundamentally if cancel culture existed then, in a world of cancel culture, you can't agree to disagree and you can't agree that there may be not just one right path to the truth. And I think so much of why we're seeing it happen today is Jewish learning and Jewish thought has always been around context and debate. That's why when you, when you study the Talmud, you're delving into issues and then you're imagining other scenarios and you're questioning. In a cancel culture world where social media rules the day and people are tweeting where you have a limited number of characters, there's no time for context. What you're aiming for is short, memorable, and things that will get likes, tweets, reshares, et cetera. So the idea is the more strident you are and the more alarmist you are and the sassier you are and the more controversial, the more noise you're likely to make you're trying to break through a tremendous amount of debate and discussion that's happening. And so people are erring on the side of outrage. It eliminates context and, and people are just not
0: deep thinking anymore right now. And it's interesting because you know all of the writing that's been about the growth of social media is about how these algorithms are designed to provoke and to promote outrage. And yet ironically, we are less resilient to outrage than we ever used to be. You know, I think about the story of Professor Joshua Katz, who was fired from Princeton because of an article that he wrote against a list of demands that were made by students in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, or recently, In the Tennessee House of Representatives, where they voted to force out two young black members of the Tennessee House, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, because they had a display of a protest on the floor of the House of Representatives against gun violence in the aftermath of that terrible school shooting in Nashville. What's happened to us that we have become so frail? that we can't tolerate dissent or disagreement, that we're unwilling to allow our outrage just to sit with us a little bit and to digest it, to think about it or consider it. What's happened to us that we've become so alarmed and unable to withstand or to deal with some sense of dissent?
1: Well, a big part of it has to do with the fact that I think we've seen fundamentally our democracy in America has been strained lately in large part because the system that we have is providing more power into the hands of the people on the extremes. So it's the very vocal groups within both the left and the right. These are the primary voters. They are the true believers, and so they have an outweighed sense of – power in determining who the candidates are going to be, and these are the people who are the most politically active. And so our politics has become – the partisan divide has grown bigger and bigger and bigger through the years. And so I think when you combine that with the fact that we are being bombarded all day, every day with messages, and to your point about the algorithms reward outrage, they reward the anger, the angry things – The members of Congress are seeing that. They understand that and that's how you have people in Congress who may not even have any real political power in terms of sitting on the right committees or being chairs of of the committees and yet they're famous. They're names that people know at home – Because they understand how to get media attention and how to provoke outrage. And so whenever there's an opportunity, they insert themselves in the discussions. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia comes to mind. Say what you like about her politics and I don't think that's really the point here. She is a master at weighing in and inserting herself into the biggest controversies and making a spectacle of herself and so she's getting attention and so when you've got – The silent majority, which are either lawmakers who are really trying to do the right thing or the general population who just wants to go on with their lives, they are not rewarded in the same way the algorithms and the news media do with giving all of the attention and the spotlight to the most extreme elements. And so that's why it's happening.
0: At the same time, are there times when it's like okay to cancel somebody? You know, we can think about all of these examples where we see cancel culture employed unfairly. But then there are times like, for example, with Kanye West or Ye as he is known now, where he was saying he wanted to go death con three on the Jewish people or he posted a swastika inside a Jewish star in his Twitter feed or hanging out with white supremacists or going on media and saying, I like Hitler. Shouldn't someone like that be canceled? Wasn't it a good thing that he was robbed of his contracts with Adidas and that weren't telling Jewish kids, don't wear his sneakers? Are there some virtues sometimes where people should or ought to be canceled? People
1: absolutely should be criticized. People absolutely should be held to account. In terms of if they commit crimes, that's why we have due process in this country. I think boycotts, and people taking their business elsewhere, that's always been and it is still a valid tool. The difference that I would draw between boycotting a company or speaking out, protesting, there's a difference between that versus trying to destroy someone's life and their livelihood and try to make them a pariah forever. So I think in recent days, we've seen enormous controversy around – Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light because they they decided that they were going to send a, a can to a transgender person who has 11 million followers on TikTok. And what it did was it prompted outrage on the right and a lot of people posting these these really irate videos about how they're they're going to boycott Bud Light and they're you know trending on Twitter was boycott Bud Light. That's a boycott. It's a company that chose to wade into a highly politicized issue. But that's different from targeting people, from doxing them, from trying to intimidate them, silence them, et cetera. Do I think it's a good thing that Adidas dropped Ye? Absolutely. Was it right for the community to stand up and demand that Kanye West should be held to account for his comments? Yes. But I would also argue, though, at the same time, we have to be careful with going to extremes. In a cancel culture world, should we demand that every streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music delete Kanye West's music from their catalogs and make it impossible for people to ever stream his music? Should we demand that every website eliminate mentions of Kanye West? That is an extreme that I'm talking about. I think debate. Holding people to account, punishing them for transgressions, that's fine. I'm talking about with cancel culture where you're trying to destroy them forever and taking it that next step, which I don't think that there's ever really a justified instance to permanently destroy someone.
0: When you work with your clients, what do you advise them? How do you guide them when they find themselves in a place where they're dealing with the wrath of the mob or having to confront elements of this culture where, as you say, it's not just their words, but themselves that are being excised from society or businesses being destroyed or things like that. It's really hard when you're in a crisis.
1: It's a very disconcerting moment. Your life is is hanging in the balance. You're, you could be facing the prospect of losing your business, facing physical threats, et cetera. I think the instinct for a lot of people in those situations is when they hear danger coming, it's almost like a turtle who's crossing the highway and you've got this 18-wheeler bearing down on you. And so what does the turtle do? It, it goes within its shell and it covers up. But what's the consequence of that? It gets squashed. And I think it feels counterintuitive when you're going through a crisis, but it's at that moment where you can't afford to do or say nothing. You actually need to go public. You need to – this concept that, that I believe called press the truth where you have to advocate for yourself. If it's an instance where you've actually done something wrong and you've made a mistake, There is nothing wrong with admitting that you've made a mistake, apologizing for it, and trying to move forward, recognizing it, pledging to do better, and then actually doing better. If you are in an instance where you actually haven't done anything – and I see these instances all the time where it's either mistaken identity or someone is saying that you did something that you didn't do – you have to push back against that. You have to press the truth. You have to get the facts out there because if you're not willing to advocate for yourself and you're not willing to tell the story, someone else is going to
0: tell it for you and they're not going to tell it the way that you want it told. So tell me a little bit more about what it means to press the truth because I think it happens that it can be absolutely terrifying to see people – sullying what you think was your good name or mischaracterizing or misrepresenting something that you had said that maybe wasn't taken the way you anticipated or thought you know not all of us are professional communicators like you so tell us a little bit more I guess about what it means to press the truth.
1: Yeah, so I'll bring it home to a, a very concrete example, real life scenario so that people can understand how to put it into practice. There are four case studies that I have at the back of the cancel culture curse that people can refer to and hopefully learn from in terms of best practices. And In one of these case studies, I tell the story about a woman who had a small business, a wedding shop in Michigan, and she was away with her husband, woke up to all these messages on her phone. And there were cries that her wedding shop should be boycotted. It should be shut down, that they were a bunch of racists and they deserved to be driven out of business. Now, in this case, neither she nor any of her employees had ever done anything wrong. They got dragged into a political fight that had nothing to do with them. One of the Republican people who was supposed to be certifying the votes in Michigan was saying that she wasn't going to certify the votes. It became a big national story. So then the cancel vultures, which is a term I use for people who love to to find a target and then to become social justice crusaders, they found this tweet from a year before of this woman talking about that there was a sale at this wedding shop. They incorrectly leapt to the conclusion that this person was an own the wedding shop or worked for. And so a boycott call went out. And so the next thing you know, the CEO of this small company that has 30 employees was facing the prospect of everybody shutting her down and destroying her business when she had actually had never talked to this person. She didn't know who this person was. It was a complete case of mistaken identity. Now, if she'd been a turtle and she'd done or said nothing, she could have been out of business within weeks. However, she opted to press the truth. So what did she do? She immediately went public. She clarified that she didn't know this person. How did she do it? She, she ended up – we guided her through that scenario. So we reached out to the social media influencer who had spread the word and had rallied the troops to cancel her and to boycott her business and we pressed the truth. We laid out to the social media influencer, here are the facts. We don't know who this person is. They tweeted about the shop years ago. There's no connection here. So to call for a boycott is completely unfair. We took it even one step further because the CEO was a great communicator. We actually proactively went and contacted the local press where she lived in Michigan and invited them to come to the store and to do a story on her and the fact that people were trying to boycott her and destroy her business when it was a case of mistaken identity. So we flipped the script. She went from being the victim to advocating for herself. The social media influencer, when they received the information, they took down the post. The media shared the story, which then went all over the local community. And her customers and her friends and her community members actually rallied to her defense.
0: So there are cases, of course, where there's mistaken identity and things happen where things are misconstrued. But there are, of course, cases where people actually – say things that are impertinent or difficult or painful to people. In your TED Talk, you talk about the importance of what you call the secret, share with care, post with purpose. So often people act without thinking, or they are immature at one stage of their life, or they'll post something without thinking of the consequences of how it might be perceived or received by someone else in the future, or they'll let emotion take control and fire off a thought without first thinking about what that might mean. And, you know, it's not just adolescents, right? It's adults who do this, too. Is it fair to ask people to be responsible for what they say, or do we as a society need to just be a little bit more understanding and forgiving? Well, I think we absolutely have to be more forgiving and more
1: understanding. I think we as Jews recognize that we're imperfect people. We're imperfect creatures. That's why Yom Kippur gives us an opportunity to atone for the sins that we commit, the ones that we commit against our fellow man and then to ask God for forgiveness. I think if anybody thinks that they're not going to make a mistake or do or say something that hurts someone else, they're delusional. We all do it. And what we have to do is get back to a time where people can make mistakes, but then they can receive forgiveness and they can learn. There's so much learning that happens from the mistakes that we make. And what we can't do is take away the ability for people to – make a misstep but then to correct course and to make themselves better as a consequence. And the problem with cancel culture is that it makes every mistake permanent and there's no limit. There's no statute of limitations in terms of how long you should be punished for something that you did or you said. And it's just not fair. I do think people need to be very cautious and they need to be very careful, especially if they're posting on social media. Anything you do or say can and will be used against you down the line. So before you send that tweet or you make that post on Facebook or even before you fire off an angry text message to someone with whom you're in the midst of a conflict, pause for a moment and think about how would I feel if this message were on the front page of a newspaper or were on the home page of a news site and went out to the whole world. When I talk about sharing with care and post with purpose – be careful about what you say and make sure that what you're putting out into the world is something that you're comfortable with and that will age well and that you wouldn't be embarrassed if it were to come out. And if you're not sure, err on the side of caution and don't
0: say it, don't send it, don't tweet it, etc. In Jewish tradition, words are considered to be among the holiest things that we possess the idea that God created the universe from words, right? Of all the tools that God could have used to create worlds, the Torah teaches it is words. I remember when uh, Amy was starting to read, my wife Amy was starting to read the Harry Potter series, and she was so engrossed in this world that didn't actually exist except because of the words that JK Rowling used to create that world. And so in Jewish tradition, we talk about Lashon Kodesh. We talk about the holiness of language. What makes a person a moral agent is their capacity for self-restraint. The capacity to say, well, you know, I would do that. I might even want to do that, but I'm not going to do that because it's wrong. And I think expecting people to exercise a little bit more self-restraint in all of these fields, whether it's asking somebody to exercise more self-restraint in what they say, in what they post, in what they tweet, or to expect people to exercise self-restraint in how they hear those words or in how they respond so that they don't say, wow, that person posted something or wrote something in a newspaper or said something on television, and I'm going to make it my business to destroy their business and their livelihood and everything that goes on in their lives, we all, I think, need to exercise some measure of self-restraint. And I think that's a little bit where tshuva comes in, this idea that we can grow. So when you end up working with a client or someone who actually did step in it, right, who actually did something or said something that was perhaps really offensive or wrong, how do you guide them to move through that? when they face maybe what even might even be seen by some as a justified cancellation. So the key
1: is if if you've done something that you regret and it warrants an apology, you should apologize and you should take responsibility for it. And you should express yourself in a way that's authentic, that doesn't make people feel like you are accepting responsibility or you're saying that you're sorry – When really, you're not sorry that you did it. You're sorry that you got caught. But you need to express and convey, and people have to believe you, that you actually see the error of your ways. Words are cheap sometimes. Pledging to do better is one thing, but then actually carrying that out. And so one of the things that we always counsel our clients is you need to own the mistake. You need to explain why what you did or said was wrong, that you recognize that. And then if you're pledging to do better, you actually have to do those things. You can't just talk, you've got to walk the talk as well. You know, I agree with you, we have to get back to a time where we're in a more forgiving society. You know, I walked in today to meet with you and I looked on the wall and and art in the beautiful lobby at at, at here at Temple Bethel and it said, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. And if you take those words to heart. That means even if someone does something to offend you or upset you or they make a mistake, think about how you would feel if the shoe was on the other foot. And if you were the one who had made a mistake, you wouldn't want to see your whole life destroyed because you made an error. You'd want to be given a fair opportunity to own it, to recognize it, to learn from it, grow from it, and then to get on with your life. And I think that's what we all need to keep in mind and, and you know, part of the reason I wrote the book was to help people who are under fire. But another part was I wanted to, to also suggest to people, many of whom have gotten involved in attacking other people online who have felt compelled to weigh in, to demand someone get fired, et cetera, to reconsider that kind of behavior. My hope is that I can not only help people who are under fire – for either things for which they need to atone or things that they didn't actually do, but also to give people pause and to perhaps curb some of their instincts and do more of what you described, which is be willing to exercise a measure of self-restraint and to love thy neighbor as thyself and maybe be a little bit more understanding and give them an opportunity
0: to make it right. And I think that that sense of authentic repentance, people can sometimes tell— You know, again, when you say, I'm not sorry that I did it, I'm sorry I got caught, you can tell when those apologies are. I'm reminded that back in 2018, there was a DC city councilman named Trayon White who wrote an anti Semitic tweet. It was a deeply offensive kind of a thing uh, where he said, Man, it just started snowing out of nowhere this morning. Y'all better pay attention to this climate control and the climate manipulation, and he sort of used an anti-Semitic kind of a a frame as if Jews were the ones who were causing climate change or other kinds of things. And it was a big deal. He was shouted out uh, rightly for that. My colleague Rabbi Danny Zemmel said in the Washington Post at that time, this kind of anti-Semitism is unacceptable in any public official. And he apologized. And he wrote that he sincerely apologized, that he cares deeply about the Jewish community, and that he wants to work to make sure that he doesn't do that again. And what happened was he started working with an organization called Jews United for Justice, a social service organization in Washington, D.C., who knew him from other projects they had worked on and understood that he was sincere. And in private, They spent hours meeting with him and talking with him. They actually arranged for him to have a private tour of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial after hours so that there was no press and no one saw, so that he could understand why some of the things that he said were so offensive. And he really emerged as a much stronger, more understanding individual from that. And I think that that sense that we need to be appreciative of the fact that people can grow People can learn what a person knows and does at one point in their life if they're willing to open themselves up to the possibility for growth and repentance and evolution can change. And that what cancel culture to me does is it obliviates any opportunity for someone to evolve. It writes that person off. And what I love about our tradition is that our tradition doesn't write people off. Our tradition demands accountability, demands responsibility, but at the same time, it also demands evolution and growth and resilience. So lastly, Evan, I'm going to ask you, what is the essential question that you are grappling with today? The essential question that I
1: grapple with is, how can I use the most precious resource I have, which is time? in order to have the greatest possible impact for the greatest possible good. And that's something that, that I think about a lot. I think all of us, I know I do, get very busy in our day-to-day lives. And I'm always trying to challenge myself to think hard about something that I would describe as ROH, return on heartbeat. Where am I getting the most value in terms of how I spend my time and where am I giving the most value to other people. And I think, you know, writing a book is a labor of love. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of effort. The idea was to try to make the world in some small way a better place. You know, I'm trying to evolve myself. I'm always trying to get better. You know, I'm a I'm a person who makes a lot of mistakes myself and I recognize that and I'm I'm always trying to improve myself as, as a father, as a friend, as a CEO, as a leader, as a brother, a son, all these things. You know, I'm really sort of driven at the moment by this question of of how I spend my my time and and who I spend my time with, how I spend my time, what I dedicate myself to and so Every day I I try to approach the day with thinking, where can I have the biggest impact for the most good? And it inspires me
0: to get myself moving. Evan's new book, The Cancel Culture Curse, can be found on the website cancelculture.com. Uh, where you can learn more about Evan and the book. And, of course, the book is available pretty much everywhere. And I encourage you to grab it and read it. And, Evan, thank you so much for being with us today and for all that you do for our congregation and our community. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brentzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboca.org slash Questions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast.